So I'm so glad you're here today. You know, we have, this is spring break. A lot of our families are all over the place. Uh, some in D.C., some in Florida. I said to my wife this morning, I want a spring break. And so I almost didn't show up. Y'all just be on your own. But I, you know, I, I kind of had to be here. Um, so I'm glad that you're here. And uh, if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to take them and open them up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, we're going to look at those verses here in a few moments. And then we're going to flip over to Mark chapter 14. So if you have your device ready, you can go there with me. If you don't have a device or a Bible, uh, it's okay. The words will be up on the screen. And we're really glad all the kids are in here with us on our first Sunday of the month. We come to the Lord's table and we have all of our children in with us. So there may be extra noise and, and that's just the adults. And we may have... Some other kids needing to, you know, that's okay. This is, we're one big family, and we're very happy you're all here. So two weeks from today, uh, we celebrate Easter. It's the high point of our remembrance. Everything our faith is built on, everything, rests on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we commemorate that time once a year, and it is the pinnacle of the Christian calendar Many uh, Christians around the world are in the Lenten season. They are approaching this time. Starting next Sunday begins what's called Holy Week. Starts with Palm Sunday the, uh, and, and Jesus uh, coming into Jerusalem, a triumphal entry into the capital. And the whole week next week is just filled with encounters and discussions and teachings and Fig trees dying and all sorts of and people being driven out of the temple by Jesus himself. It's, it's an amazing week. <clears throat> and this morning, because it is our normal Sunday for gathering at the Lord's table, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at what happened on the night in which he was betrayed. Paul Tripp said that of Easter, this is one, this is one culminating and specific moment in history where Jesus summarized and finalized the salvation narrative. Easter is everything for us. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We're used to hearing these verses, uh, especially as we approach the table, gather there for communion, including that very poignant phrase on the night in which he was betrayed. We're so used to hearing it that we may not even realize just how odd of a phrase that it is to be used in scripture. I mean, why didn't Paul say, 
on the night in which he hosted the Passover meal for his followers? Or why didn't he say on the night in which he showed his disciples how to serve one another by washing their feet? Or let's just get right to the point. Why didn't he say on the night in which he saved the world? But this scripture that we hear so commonly doesn't say any of those things. It says on the night in which he was betrayed. Man, Paul, why you got to be so negative? Betrayal is not a fun experience at least not in my experience. It cuts deep, it causes damage, oftentimes irreparable damage. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever felt betrayed? Have you ever betrayed someone? It's not fun. It leaves lasting scars. It hurts, makes you feel disillusioned, makes you start questioning your judgment of character. And yet, this covenant meal, Jesus shared with his disciples what we call the Last Supper, both started and ended with a prediction of betrayal. Now, turn back with me to Mark, like we said, Mark 14. Mark 14, and we'll look at verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Announcing betrayal was how Jesus started the evening, which was a very full evening of all sorts of significant, meaningful dialogue and activity. But it's also how Jesus ended, or close to ended, the evening as well. When his closest disciples who had gone with him to a garden couldn't stay awake to pray. Look down at verse 41 of Mark 14. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you know what the, uh, the major requirement of betrayal is? Association. Um, being so close that it matters. If a stranger does something mean or, or harmful to you, you might be mad or offended. It might even hurt. But you haven't really been betrayed. You don't really know them. Betrayal happens where there is first a relationship, a friendship, a connection, a bond. You're not betrayed by strangers. 
You're betrayed by a friend. You're betrayed by a spouse. You're betrayed by a family member, by someone who's close to you. In this case that we look at in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was betrayed by one of his very own. One of the 12, he said. The 12 who were closest to him, who had traveled with him for some two and a half to three and a half years as they walked with him seeing all sorts of amazing, incredible events done by the power of God. They'd heard his teaching. They had seen his miracles. They had seen the power of God resting on him. The one who would betray him, Jesus said, was someone who was at that very precise moment eating with him and who had been eating with him for several years now. Virtually every meal they had together. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had washed all of these 12 their feet, which was an amazing act in of itself of showing servant leadership. He commanded them, uh, though they had none of them stooped to do such a menial task, he had commanded them to do likewise to one another. I often remember that when I see leaders in Christianity today jockeying for position and prestige. Jesus wrapped himself in an apron and washed their dirty, grimy, smelly feet. He washed all 12 of their feet, including the one who would betray him. Can you imagine how convicting that must have been for Judas? Can you imagine how sorrowful that must have been for Jesus? But Jesus fully embodied everything he taught. Like when he had earlier told them on the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The word betrayal literally means to give over. To give over. It means to take something that at one time you were holding and to give it over to someone else. Judas was taking his rabbi, his master, his teacher. He was taking Jesus, someone he'd been holding on to for three plus years and giving him over to the authorities to be arrested and tried and crucified. But the giving him over was not the only betrayal that Jesus suffered on this night. Look at verse 26 of Mark 14. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you, to Galilee. Do you notice what's happening here? We've moved from one who will betray and give him over to all who will fall and be scattered. The New Living Translation says, all of you will desert me. The Greek word for fall away or desert 
is the word scandalizo. Scandalizo, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's right, scandal, scandalous. This falling away would certainly be scandalous. Jesus used the same word when he was speaking a parable one time. He was speaking this parable about the word of God and how it was like seed that would be scattered and fall on different kinds of ground, four different kinds of soil to be precise. Hard packed soil like on a well-worn path, rocky soil, soil that was overtaken by thorns and thistles, and good soil that could receive the seed. Of the, sown, of the, of the, of the seed sown on, on rocky soil, Jesus said this in Mark 4, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Scandaliso. They desert. So this night of Passover was not just about betrayal. It was also about the scandal of desertion. Maybe the scripture that Paul wrote to the Corinthians should have said on the night in which he was betrayed and deserted. But surely with all of these disciples who've been so close to Jesus and who have seen so much, I am sure, right, that at least one of them would be loyal, would stick with him till the end. How about you, Brother Peter? Surely you'll right the ship. Look at Mark 14, 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, oh, Peter, no, that's my version. And Peter, or Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. We know what happened, right? Peter's mouth was writing checks that his heart couldn't cash. Well, that's, that's my paraphrase. There are other parts of the body that cash checks too, but I knew I couldn't say that in church. The ESV says he spoke emphatically, passionately. He was fully convinced of what he was saying. I will not deny you even if I have to die. He was emphatic. I've said things like that, which I couldn't back up and then live to regret. You probably have too. But it wasn't just Peter who spoke this way. We're told that they all said the same thing. All of them. They're just following Peter into making emphatic statements. We will not deny you. Funny enough, they can't even stay awake in a few hours from now. But they're fully convinced that they'll die if have to. 
I don't want to be too critical of them because I feel like their nature is our nature too. And we're just as prone as they are to speaking emphatically and not backing up our words with real action. So while Peter didn't deny Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he was still like all the rest of them who fell away. He wasn't any different than they were. But he took it to a whole nother level because you see, just as Jesus predicted before the rooster crowed twice, he had denied Jesus three distinct times. When you realize the poor behavior on the part of all these disciples, it's a wonder that Paul didn't say to the Corinthians when he wrote that letter that we read earlier, on the night in which he was betrayed and deserted and denied. But wait, there's more. Oh, goody. Can hardly wait. More betrayal, denials, and desertions. Jesus took them further into the garden and he asked his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go with him. They were his inner circle. They'd been with him in some very intimate, powerful encounters. And so he asked them to go with him and to, to watch with him, to stay up and pray with him for his soul is anguishing and he is feeling the weight of this hour. And then, as he's asked them to pray, then he cried out to the Father and asked that this terrible thing that was about to happen, this bitter cup that he was about to drink, could it be taken from him? Here's the thing, in both instances, Jesus was fully abandoned. His disciples, the closest ones to him, couldn't stay awake. And when he petitioned his father that this cup be taken from him, the answer was no. While his closest friends slept, his father indeed required of him to drink the cup. Or as the prophet Isaiah said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, leaving no one by his side. He was despised, he was rejected. He was stricken, he was afflicted. He was pierced, he was crushed. Those are just some of the words used to describe what he would face in this hour, spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And truly, his experience had been on that night, he was given over, betrayed. He was deserted, the scandal. He was denied, and now he stood abandoned. Not just by Judas, not just by Peter, not by just the original 12, but he was abandoned and denied and deserted and betrayed by all of us. What an awful story. Why do we tell it again? Why do we reenact this betrayal every time we gather at this table? Why do we say it that way? Why would Paul write it that way? Why must we be reminded of such horrific behavior on the part of these followers each time we come to the table? Well, 
Look back at 1 Corinthians 11. Let's read it again and see what comes next. 11.23. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Even after all the betrayal and desertion and denial and abandonment, how they had given him away. It didn't keep him from giving them all that they needed. He gave his body and his blood for them, despite how they gave him over to be betrayed and tried and executed. Then in verse 25, it continues, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He was giving them all that they would need despite the fact that they had given him over to where he was headed. He is giving us all that we need. He gives us his body, which is his life. He gives us his blood, which forgives us of our sin. And even though he was given over and deserted and denied and abandoned, he made covenant with us that he would never give us over to sin and death. And he would never desert us to our condemnation. And he would never deny us before his father. And he would never abandon us in our need. While each stood guilty of betrayal, desertion, denial, and abandonment, still he gave his body and blood for them. He gave it freely. And he gives it for us. And that's why we start these verses by saying, on the night in which he was betrayed. Because though he was betrayed, he has not betrayed us. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. My wife is going to come and we're going to pray for the bread and for the wine. I'm going to ask those who are helping us by serving at the Lord's table this morning to come and gather their trays and they'll position here at the front of the room. And then after we've prayed for the bread and for the wine, we'll ask you to come and gather at the table. Have you gather where you should be? If you are in Christ Jesus, this table is for you. This is not a table of our church. You don't have to be a member of our church to gather here. You have to be a member of his body to gather here. And so if you are in Christ, we encourage you to come. Now, here's how we do it. 
We like people to come and groups to gather in a big circle. So if you're alone, if you're single or just a couple or you're not knowing anyone, don't be embarrassed if someone says, hey, come with us. Let's all go together. And then we'll have groups of six or eight people in a circle and you can gather as a part of the family. We'll wait for all that can be served here and then at the end we'll conclude with the word. Donna. When we think about what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed, the ultimate price that he paid, we will never be asked to pay. He did pay it once for all. But how we are to live and relate to each other, we have to do it the way he did that. Mm -hmm. We have to be willing to fellowship with people who don't have our best interest at heart. We have to be willing to give what we have and to serve and to love even if we think it's not going to turn out well. And that goes against every part of our humanity. And so if, you're, if you've already accepted Jesus as your Lord and you're taking communion today, take a moment and ask him where you need to be giving, where maybe you're withholding because you're not sure of the outcome or you're convinced of the outcome and it's not the one you're looking for. And then if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, this has been a beautiful and accurate picture of the lengths he will go to to meet you where you are. That's right. And to bring you to where he is. I loved that quote that you gave at the beginning by Paul David Tripp, that it summarized and finalized the entire gospel of salvation. That's right. So I'm going to pray for us as we do the bread. Yes. Okay. So we're going to, Donna's going to pray and then we'll pray for the bread and also the wine. Would you join us? Father, to say that we are grateful um, seems so small when the enormity of what you did to bring us into uninterrupted communion with you is truly beyond our comprehension. But we are grateful. Your love and grace and mercy were shining on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And so we come exactly as we are, not hiding anything, not trying to make it sound better than it is, not promising we will not deny you or abandon you or turn you over because we're guilty of all of those things. But we come acknowledging that your sacrifice, the new covenant that you offered, can be ours today. And so we receive you, all that you are, your will for us, and we bow before you, declaring that indeed you alone are God.
Lord, we thank you for the price that you paid that we can be in your presence and have fellowship with the Father. We especially thank you, Lord, that though we were marred and stained with our sin, you washed us clean by your blood. A blood covenant was always the requirement. When you made covenant with Abraham, you shed the blood of a bull. When you made covenant with the people of Israel and Moses, you had them sprinkle blood on the altar. And when your son came, once and for all, he shed his blood that no blood would ever have to be shed again. Cleanse us, O Lord, today as we receive your life, the body of Jesus, and as we receive your blood, the cup of the new covenant, where we stand whole and holy because of what you've done. As we come here today, may the things that are in our hearts that have kept us out of your presence, that have kept us from one another, that have kept us far from your purpose, may we find those things being touched by you and may we repent, turn away from that and return to you, receiving your full forgiveness and restoration that we can be in full fellowship with you. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is here today that does not know you, that has not received the covenant fullness that you provided. Lord, may your spirit speak and draw and bring them close to you that they may be able to see you as you really are, be drawn to you and receive the life that you purchased for them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.